From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it's winter in the Catskills, and today's story starts with a walk in the snow with my dad. We were up in the woods near his house in White Sulphur Springs recently, and he starts talking about birds. Actually, one particular bird, a robin. And my dad, for some context, is a retired high school earth science teacher, and he is someone who pays attention to his surroundings. And this robin was pretty concerning to him because it wasn't so much about what he saw, but when he saw it. It was in early February, in his backyard. For the last few years, he has seen more and more robins in the middle of winter, and winters in the area have become noticeably more mild. Now, an experienced birder listening to this might point out that American robins don't actually migrate out of any of the lower 48 states over the winter, they often just make regional movements to follow sources of food. And they would be right. But these omnivores do seem to have more access to winter food in our neck of the woods recently. A few days after he saw the robin, he saw Canada geese flying back to the area and paddling around local lakes, which have more open water than they used to over the winter. That, he told me, just didn't sit right. And this got me thinking about that old canary in a coal mine saying, originating from when miners would bring canaries in bird cages down into coal mines with them, and because of the bird's small size and rapid breathing rate and high metabolism, they would die before the miners would if there was too much carbon monoxide in the air giving miners enough time to get out of there. In case you're curious, by the way, this was a standard practice in coal mining from 1911 all the way until 1986. Anyway, I digress. Birds are not only an important part of a healthy ecosystem, a staple of the global ecotourism sector, and a multi-billion dollar element of our food supply, because yes, chickens and turkeys are birds too, they are also a valuable bellwether. And before we see mass migration of human beings because of a shifting climate, we're going to see it happen with birds first. And we're already seeing some of this happen, not just in my dad's backyard, but in more reliable scientific studies with long-term large sample data analysis. A study from 2021 examined 50 years of migratory patterns for a range of African birds and found that they are spending less and less time in their warm African winter retreats and more and more time back in Europe as it gets warmer there. Another study from the same year found that Richard's pipits, a common bird in Siberia, tend not to migrate to their former winter homes in southern Asia and are instead migrating on an east-to-west axis. 
A 2022 study found that the availability of aquatic insects in upstate New York is now earlier in the year and peaking over a shorter period of time than it did a few decades ago, which causes shifts in the timelines of bird migration and breeding as a result. And the list goes on and on. So today, let's talk about birds. And as it so happens, upstate New York is home to some of the world's leading ornithologists, thanks in large part to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University. So the other day, I spoke with Dr. Andrew Farnsworth, Senior Research Associate in the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, to get a better sense of how bird populations and migratory patterns are changing and why. I started out by asking Dr. Farnsworth how scientists go about measuring and studying bird migration patterns. In some ways, it's very simple. There is an element of studying migration, which is all about observation as a human that we do with our eyes and our ears and understanding over time how patterns change with what we see and hear. Um, obviously, because migration happens over such large spatial extents and uh, long periods of time in many respects, and obviously changes over those times, we also need to use other tools, um, not just more people for you know more eyes and ears, but also what we call remote sensing methods. So uh, other kinds of indirect ways of studying and extending our capabilities. For example, radar is one that we use. Weather surveillance radar is great at, at detecting, obviously, meteorological phenomena in the atmosphere. It also happens to be very good at detecting biological phenomena like bird migration and when birds are aloft. So using those kinds of tools like radar, for example, we can extend our capabilities that our eyes and ears have just from one point in space where, say, I am, to an entire continental scale with a network of radars. So that's that's one of the ways we study it. Of course, there are a few others, <laughs> a whole array of them, but that's an example. Is the consensus that climate change is impacting bird migration patterns in some way? And if so, by how much? Yeah, so climate change definitely impacts bird migration. And in fact, at the grandest scales where we think about, you know, evolutionary timescales and geological timescales, the whole notion that bird migration exists is because of changing climate, right? And the distribution of, of food resources and habitat that tracks that changing climate over time. So there's a very close relationship between birds migrating and changing climate. So it's a very good way of actually understanding, you know, in this current uh, phase in which we exist, um, you know, how human impacts to, you know, enhancing and making more extreme these climate changes impact bird migration. It's a great, great way to study it. And really, it's all about the idea that when birds are in a particular place at a particular time, they're using certain kinds of resources. If it's habitat for nesting, or if it's food to, to produce offspring or whatever it is. And that can be related back to what we call sort of first principles of, of the sun's energy in a particular place that creates the climatic patterns that we have and how those change. Obviously we know they change over time. And we know specifically that in the last hundred to 200 years, 
those patterns of changing climate are dramatically uh, enhanced. And um, we've seen obviously some radical extremes happen just in the past year. And birds respond to that. Birds are really good indicators of those kinds of changes. I mean, the whole canary and the coal mine euphemism is very meaningful. It's true. You know, birds are sensitive to their environment. And because we can see and hear them uh, very clearly and study them, you know, using whether it's, you know, observations from that I make or colleagues or these remote sensing methods, we can study those changes and that the connections to, to the way birds behave and where they are on the planet has some really great uh, insight for us into how climate is changing and what those impacts look like. Have you seen specific examples in New York state of species shifting when they're migrating, where they're migrating and perhaps population trends more broadly here? Yeah, the species shifts and the the shifts in timing and, and um, the distribution of birds in New York in particular, some of the most striking examples, um, there are some for migration, but some of the most striking ones relate to winter distributions of birds and birds that are now uh, spending time, for example, in New York State during winter periods, where in the past they would have migrated elsewhere farther south. A whole range of species, uh, for example, uh, some waterfowl like Canada geese, turkey vulture, um, a raptor, obviously. Um, These species are now regularly occurring in New York State in the winter, whereas you know, even 20, 30 years ago, um, finding a turkey vulture, for example, or even finding large numbers of Canada geese um, would be sort of like a a red letter moment in some respects. Um, Other species like, uh, for example, short distance migrants, birds that may breed or uh, pass through the New York state area, but will spend the winters typically, say, in the southeastern U.S., so not very long-distance migrants, but, say, migrating within the U.S., what we call shorter-distance migrants or even facultative migrants, birds that that really move when they have to. We see pretty dramatic changes in, in those distributions, even on a year-to-year basis. Like if it's a warm winter, for example, or if it's going to be a warm spring like this one is forecast to be, the expectation that those birds will track those changes and arrive earlier because, of course, the warm wave is happening to the south and increasing, you know, moving moving farther north. So species like eastern Phoebe arriving, you know, significantly earlier some years, um, we see those kinds of patterns, too. Now, there are a number of other things, you know, that, I mean, there's a diversity of birds that occurs annually in New York State that's between three and 400 species. So there are lots and lots of patterns we see here. But no question, we see these kinds of changes on the basis, particularly of the the distributions in winter, but also of these short distance migrants that are really tuned into to changes that are occurring like on a seasonal basis almost, or you know, sort of like the anomalies that we see this spring versus last spring. Do we see patterns that are kind of longer term? Like for example, you know, new birds arriving in New York State that didn't breed there before. We see those kinds of things too, no question, sort of the the creep northward, the expansion that's associated with climate change also. So uh, all all of these different kinds of flavors of what it means for for climate change impacts and and bird distributions, we see those things. For any species that are here year round that, that aren't migrating to some extent, have we seen changes in their behavior or populations given that the climate they are used to may no longer exist? 
the changes that we see for more resident birds that are really not necessarily migrants or moving only very, very short distances, sort of dispersing, we certainly see changes there too. They, they're, they're different though, obviously, in terms of thinking, what's the timing of breeding? What's the timing of producing offspring? Um, how far are birds going based on what habitats are available or how are populations expanding or contracting locally because of that? Um, those kinds of things, sometimes they're a little bit harder to tease out because, of course, resident birds, um, there is no necessarily immediate pulse of an arrival or departure. Obviously, they're present all the time. So you have to tune into some other different kinds of attributes in order to understand what's happening. When do you start hearing the first the first songs and and where do you start hearing them? Um, you know, where when and where do you start seeing young birds, you know, that are fledging from the nest? Um, these patterns where birds are 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 breeding earlier, that's something we also see in New York State as well. Um, does it also mean that uh, some birds are sort of getting pushed out of the state because temperatures are increasing? We're losing, for example, high elevation habitats or, or those are changing dramatically. Probably if we haven't seen that, we're going to start to see that soon. And of course, all of this is, is really uh, confounded, but also kind of enhanced by other patterns that are happening, changes in human use and, and land use and, and loss of habitat that's kind of separate from climate change. So sometimes it's really hard to tease apart exactly, well, what is the, the response to climate change versus what is a response to actually what's happening for residents in particular to very local habitat conditions that are more driven not by a change in climate, but by a change in the way humans are using a particular or not using a particular agricultural area or uh, developing you know, more built environment or that kind of situation. Obviously, in the last 50, 60 years, there's been more of a focus on environmental conservation and being mindful of preserving our environment for other species that are here just besides ourselves. Um, are there any human activities specifically, though, that are happening more now that you're concerned about with their impact on our birds? Yeah, there are a couple that let, talking about migration in particular. There are there are really uh, two or three human activities or human related activities that are primary drivers. That are things, for example, that we can control if we just change our behaviors a little bit. Um, one relates to, as I mentioned, the built environment and more and more structures and more and more glass. You know, like you can see. Uh, uh, in a city or in you know any kind of a construction of a of a house even glass that is not treated for um so that birds can see it so that they can perceive that it's a solid object rather than some reflection or something that they can fly through um that's a serious problem collisions kill you know hundreds of millions of birds every year in the US and treating the windows and sort of the the expansion of the built environment and these windows and glass surfaces that are not treated is a serious issue i mean that's a huge number of birds that are that are killed every year in these collisions and there is some relationship of light pollution to that too. Um, so reducing the light pollution that attracts and disorients birds migrating at night when most movements happen and treating the glass so that birds can see it, those are primary ways that we can address some, some problems that are really like over the last 50 to 60 years, expanding dramatically as humans, you know, sort of expand their impact, their footprint, if you will, uh, in that sort of built environment and more and more structures and new houses. And it's not just skyscrapers, it's also single story and, and low story buildings as well. Um, 
And an, another example that's a little bit less direct with the human activity, uh, but relates to where humans are, is cats, right? Is feral cats, like keeping cats inside uh, is a huge win for saving birds because cats kill a huge number of birds every year uh, that are, you know, outdoor cats. Um, and keeping them inside uh, is a really, really big win. I mean, talking about like one to two billion birds killed every year because of outdoor cats, right? One way or another, whether they're feral or house cats that are living outside, keeping them inside is a direct win. And it again, that connection of where humans are to where these animals are and their impacts. That's another thing that we've seen dramatically increase in terms of the, the problem, the challenges for bird populations um, in the past, say, half century. And, and some of these are declined with, uh, you know, many people have have seen and been alarmed by the publication a couple of years ago that, that highlighted, you know, a, a three billion bird loss over 50 years, you know, um, of, of breeding populations, basically, you know, taking these birds out of the system, dramatic declines, like, you know, uh, basically one out of every four birds, you know, I mean, really, really huge impacts. Um, and connected with that are these kinds of changes with human land use and, and the built environment, uh, things that go along with where humans are like cats, obviously the habitat piece and the climate change piece and other things of pollution. But those are just some examples of, of the kinds of changes we've seen over the last, you know, 50 to 60 years in particular that have these kinds of impacts. And, and I mentioned the built environment with glass and light and cats in particular, because those are all things that as a homeowner, as a pet owner, as someone who works in a business, you can make changes to those things and actually have a positive impact. Whereas the the large amount of land change or, or you know, sort of preserving big chunks of land or making changes to, to you know, larger scale actions to reduce uh, increasing temperatures, those are bigger scale challenges and, and acting as an individual, it's a little bit harder to see your impacts. But with the glass light and cats, that's something that individuals could do. How worried should we be about changes in, in bird populations, whether it's changes in migratory patterns or just a loss of, of birds altogether, whether it's certain species or, or just a large part of species? Obviously, we all play some role in the broader ecosystem that we live in. If all of a sudden there are certain bird species that are no longer a part of our ecosystem is that bad news you know radiating out in in other ways i think there are three different sort of parallel reasons to be worried about declining bird populations to be concerned one um is that yeah birds do occupy a very particular place uh in ecosystems and they cross ecosystems they are pollinators, they provide other ecosystem services, they control pests, you know, they're, they're participants in these structures, these food webs, these chains that are interconnected. So as we lose those uh, elements of populations and those pieces, those connections, there can be some potentially serious problems. And, and we need to be mindful of that. Birds are these great ecological indicators, right? So being sensitive to that is important. Um, I think also we want to be mindful from the perspective of birds' ability to connect us with the world around and be connected to nature through them. The whole idea of even hearing bird songs, being outside and, and experiencing, you know, um, watching birds, that connection to nature is a, is a critically important element, I think. And losing that element 
um, says something at a much kind of greater scale for um, what that means about our experience with the world around us, losing connection with it. Um, and, and I think that's a really uh, fundamental point to remember is that birds sort of allow us to be drawn into the to the world when we hear them when we see them they do cool stuff they're they're really generally easy to to find so that connectedness is is also a really important piece and then and then of course you know there's i think another dimension in particular when it comes to um some areas of the US parts of New York state included in that there is a serious serious financial gain you know, from people going to see birds, I mean, something close to 100 million people in the U.S. are either interested enough in birds or going out to participate like almost on a daily basis. And there are a lot of dollars. There are billions of dollars involved in that. So some places where birds are present, people are going to go and spend a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of thought and a lot of a lot of uh, connection to particular places. So there's that element, too, you know, sort of just trying to think about the connection to, to the human element and, and why we would care about it beyond those three kinds of things. Well, Obviously, these organisms have a right to exist in their own, and and there's a whole whole uh, endeavor of you know um, sort of the their plight, right, and the the existence in terms of the evolutionary history, uh, what's changed over the last you know much shorter scale of time, um, and and there's a series of arguments that exists there too as well that is equally powerful but that human connection piece um and and why we should care about it i think those are really strong reasons you know you think about the current state of the world and the evolution of all this amazing technology that extends our our you know capabilities to sense and survey the world I think it's really important that we balance how we use that to gather as much information as we can and, and learn as much as we can, you know, really like the pursuit of science and then turning that into knowledge. But that at the core, you know, we want to make sure that we stay connected to our eyes and ears and the experiences that we have outside, you know, and and staying connected enough to that to be outside and to be inspired by it and be moved by it and have concern. You know, I think that balance of technology and human experience is a really important one to remember now as we go farther and farther into the technological world and advance with, you know, new, new kinds of information gathering, new kinds of visuals, new kinds of tools, smartphones that do everything. It's important to make sure that we use our eyes and ears and, and actually, you know, remember what it is to be connected. So who is getting connected to our natural world through birding locally? Well, there are a handful of organizations that gather data on the bird populations of our region, and I thought it might be interesting to check in with one to get a better understanding of how people actually go about this process of observing the evolving behaviors and activities of birds. So I got in touch with the folks at the John Burroughs Natural History Society 
in Ulster County, New York. And not only does this organization have a long history of birding, but one of the people involved with the society also happens to be the regional coordinator of the third New York State Breeding Bird Atlas. And if you're wondering what that is, well, stay tuned. I was joined for this conversation by Mark D-Day, the current president of the John Burroughs Natural History Society, and Wendy Tachi, a regional breeding bird atlas coordinator. And I started by asking Wendy to tell me more about what this atlas is and how it works. And by the way, throughout this recording, you're going to hear a lot of birds in the background. That's because when Mark D-Day isn't serving in his capacity as president of the John Burroughs Natural History Society, he's working at the Forsyth Nature Center, where he cares for a lot of birds. He was calling in from that center when we spoke. Basically, New York State has been broken up into um, blocks um, based on the USGS Topo Quad and um, a couple of those Uh, Within each topo quad, it's been split up further. So in each of them, there are two blocks that are considered priority blocks. So um, when we started the study, you know, we wanted two of those those priority blocks in each of the the quads covered very completely. Um, And what coverage means is you um, go out to a block, mindful that you're in the priority block. You observe. Um, breeding behavior. So there's a range of breeding behavior um, from sort of lower codes. So if you hear a bird singing, that's related to breeding and attracting a mate and um, determining one's territory. So that's a a possible code. Um, And then there's kind of a gradation of codes. So the ultimate challenge, you know, the ultimate observation is to confirm breeding. So that could be fledglings in a nest. It could be um, a bird carrying food. So go out, get in your block, you code the species that you've observed and you enter them into eBird, which is um, an application developed by Cornell. And it's a way to collect data about about birds and observations. And it's a, a very large data set. It's a data is collected globally. Lots of birders are used to entering an eBird. So that's the way the Atlas is collecting the data to then use to, you know, for studies and conservation and um, to tell what's happening to species in the state, um, how their distribution's changing. um, Are they doing well? Are they not doing well? Currently, there are 3,788 atlasers across New York State who are out collecting this data. I also wanted to know more about what the John Burroughs Natural History Society is. Here's Mark. The society formed right around the same time as the SUNY New Paltz uh, was developed, and some of our founders were really pillars as uh, the, the first set of professors, and most of them in the science department. That kind of our names out of and then that was in 1950 and kind of are there in our historical records and I think birders you kind of get the gist uh, from Wendy we kind of are called listers in in uh, Europe and we collect data even when we don't have to <laughs> many of us <laughs> uh, we all have these little uh, notebooks with 
checklist from such and such, and sometimes much of uh, those 30-year-old checklists are illegible. And now with the advent of eBird, uh, it's all right there for you. It's very accessible. There's a continuity in the club that we also uh, try to replicate certain field trips. And kind of, and and that speaks to you and mentioning the trends in, in our natural world and how they're changing. And we can, but, but there still are the tried and true, uh, you know, things that happen based on the length of daylight, regardless whether it's a sixty degree day in in February or a thirty degree day in February. So uh, a walk that I lead in a couple of weeks is one that's been held without fail uh, since nineteen fifty. And in our region, that's kind of unique. And a big part of it isn't even about birds. It's about finding stoneflies on a, on a small bridge in, in southern Ulster County. And that's something that probably was witnessed in 1950. And we try to replicate that, make sure that that experience happens every year since. Um, I would just want to mention, too, the accessibility to this breeding bird atlas, this third one. I was around as a birder for the first two, and I don't want to say that participation was kind of elusive, but you felt like you needed to be more of a, a, a scientist or somebody in the field uh, professionally. Uh, and the, the way you submitted the data was, you know, old fashioned. And now, uh, as Wendy mentioned, over 3,000, I didn't even realize it was that many. And just in New York State, we're not the only state conducting an atlas currently. Uh, it's accessible, it's inviting, it's uh, engaging. And, you know, the hard part is what Wendy and other regional coordinators have to do after the fun of birding. And that's kind of putting all the data in place and, and uh, seeing where efforts are needed. So we, you know, a guy like me just gets to go birding. And really, uh, a real beauty of it is that we get to slow down and pay attention to the birds. We don't just check them off on a checklist like we might other times uh, when we're out. And you kind of get into that habit. It also just so happened that the day I spoke with Mark and Wendy was an important day for thousands of avid birders. And a big one for citizen science, too. So this afternoon, uh, this is the kickoff of the Great Backyard Bird Count. And in Ulster County, we have uh, walks sponsored by John Burroughs Natural History Society. Here in Kingston today, I'll do something around 3.30 in our small little 18-acre park. Wendy will be doing something this weekend uh, on the Kingston waterfront in association with a good friend of ours, Chicory Naturalist, a great shop. Just definitely check that place out. Uh, we have walks all over the county, this big county of ours, in Minnewaska State Park, in Newports, in Sorgates, and a couple locations. When you're leading a walk, what does that consist of? And, and what are people looking for? And, and what are they doing on that? Is your goal usually to go also to very consistent places year after year to see how things change? Yeah, so this walk this weekend is all about the great backyard bird count. Um, we are not in peak breeding season at the moment, yet breeding is starting to happen. The resident birds are already starting to sing. Um, they are, are starting to display courtship. So we'll be looking out for that for sure. Owls, eagles are in full-on breeding season right now. So this walk this weekend is really about the great backyard bird count, which is getting a picture of what is what's happening right prior to birds migrating. 
which is a big time for birders. So for this weekend, we are walking down along the Roundout Creek in Kingston um, to see what we can see. Um, hopefully we'll see some waterfowl, some local birds. Um, if we see breeding behavior, we're going to note that an e-bird. Um, although we're not in a, a priority block throughout the the season and the during breeding season, you know, we're very specifically target targeting and visiting these priority blocks. So this is a little pre pre breeding season. So how long have you been serving as a regional coordinator for the Atlas and, and what is your professional background where you ended up getting into this? So this is our fifth year. So I'm going on my fifth year. Um, my professional background has absolutely nothing to do with birding. You know, I am an avid birder. I believe in citizen science. I wanted to contribute to the study. I mean, in, in one way, I think at one point I'm like, I wish I was a scientist and I should go back to, to school to get my master's. But like, honestly, regular people like me don't need to do that because there are so many different citizen scientist like type things to participate in. So with John Burroughs Natural History Society, there are Christmas bird counts every year. So, you know, you start off doing those and then there's a winter waterfowl count, there's a breeding bird atlas, there's a May census day. So all of these are ways that regular people um, who have no um, background who just enjoy birds and the natural world can contribute to preserving our species, enjoying nature, observing nature. If either of you were in charge of large-scale state or federal policy, say environmental policy, what would be some day one stuff that you would want to do to help protect our environment, to protect these species, and, and, and ultimately make this a, you know, a, a healthier habitat for all of us? The preservation of habitat is, is critical. The reforesting of uh, brownscapes, birds and, and all animals, if they have time to, can adapt, some of them. What's going on now is not happening at a natural pace. So, uh, you know, most species, be it an insect or, or a bird, given a natural time to evolve or cope can do that. But we're talking about things happening at a, at a much faster pace than anything in nature's happened in our recorded history. The reclamation of space uh, uh, to pursue kind of urban density rather than sprawl, to save as much land as we can, and, and, and to not look down our noses at like an organization like Ducks Unlimited, which has saved and, and talk about wetlands, you know, healthy wetlands com uh, is comparable to the significance of saving grasslands. When we talk grasslands, we talk about hundreds and hundreds of acres. We can't just have, you know, the back 40 that's uh, not kept as a manicured lawn. You know, it's, it's got to be more than just that for certain uh, species. So, uh, you know, our, our change in practices is wonderful, uh, but it's, it's going to have to be uh, hit up. Uh, a whole nother notch as far as, you know, the powers that be. If there were a czar or a czaress uh, to do this, I would say, you know, that's it. We're going to have to 
uh, reuse the buildings in the decrepit downtown, and we're not going to sprawl out with the box stores uh, in the town of Ulster. And there's cycles in there too. So, you know, there was a period where our old farms kind of evolved into something else, um, not a box store. And those habitats, those transitioning uh, grasslands with young saplings coming in, supported things like box turtles and brown thrashers and all kinds of different critters. And, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. Mom and Pop's farm has been sitting there dilapidated. And now uh, a box store comes in, buys it up, and turns it into a big parking lot and lots of lights at night, which are bad too for migrating birds. The birds we're talking about are primarily nocturnal migrants and can be really, uh, it can be deadly to them. It throws off their whole navigation system and uh, exhausts them uh, artificially. So, uh, you know, we're doing good things, but there's a whole lot of practices as a, as a society that we need to change dramatically. How can people get involved in this citizen science? The URL to the Atlas website, it's ebird.org forward slash Atlas NY. We have almost a half a million checklists, but we are um, in the home stretch and we desperately need people to um, help us to get complete coverage across the state. We do currently have a lot of holes. We have a lot of priority blocks that haven't gotten enough attention. For the Breeding Bird Atlas, I would encourage people to um, go to that website, get in touch with the regional coordinator near them and see how that they can help. For other kinds of citizen science, look, look to your local bird club or natural history society. John Barrow's Natural History Society participates in the Christmas bird counts and waterfowl counts. So you just need to find the people near you who can hook you up with things that are going on because you will not be turned away. There's a sense of camaraderie too. You know, when I started birding, and I think a lot of folks that are interested in birding find it, find uh, the solitude appealing and kind of being at one with what's around you and just kind of be by yourself and listen and look. Uh, but then you kind of get to a certain level and it's kind of fun to be around like-minded folks. And um, I think for uh, people interested in, in starting, uh, we can kind of serve as a, a safety net or a bit of a comfort. Uh, there's such technology, the different apps that can identify the song of the bird for you. That's all well and good and definitely is, a, is a, an amazing tool. But um, I think there's uh, the, the little things, the tricks of the trade that can be learned in the field. And sometimes, you know, with us, uh, it's kind of even a, a passive thing. It's not like it's a, a hard lesson plan or it's not like homework is giving, given. Uh, and, and in our line of 15 or 20 participants, that somebody might ask about what fern species that is or what mushroom species that is. And that's on a bird walk. And that kind of makes you stop and, again, reflect on our namesake who kind of said, slow down, look under your foot, look above your head. And uh, that's appealing to us because at the core of it all, you know, we are caught up in a crazy hyperspeed society and it's nice to kind of live in a natural pace and be part of the environment. And when we learn to appreciate it, we will protect it is the game plan.
I really like the note that Mark ended on there. Birds are sort of more than birds for us human beings. They're this ubiquitous part of our natural environment, and if we're willing to stop and look around once in a while, they have a way of grounding us, keeping us planted on the planet that gave us everything we have. They're a reminder that we can build skyscrapers and satellites and stock markets and smartphones, but at the end of the day, we are part of the animal kingdom. And it's kind of cool to have these other species in our neighborhoods and backyards living these busy, fascinating lives parallel to our own. And beyond these larger scale issues like climate change that we all need to work together on, we can each take tangible steps to help protect our local bird populations. We can treat our windows to make them more visible. We can turn off outdoor lights at night and close our curtains and blinds to keep indoor light indoors. And we can keep our cats inside. Thank you so much to Dr. Andrew Farnsworth, Mark D-Day, and Wendy Tachi for their time and insights on today's episode. If you are interested in getting involved with the New York State Breeding Bird Atlas, or the Great Backyard Bird Count, or other ornithological citizen science projects, the address that Wendy mentioned again is ebird.org slash atlasny, and I will add that link in the description of this episode. Besides that, all that's left to do is sign off. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Happy birding, and have a great week. Music